Welcome to the Book a Week podcast, jointly hosted by the SEPT University Library and the Center for Research on Architecture and Urbanism. Welcome to this episode of Book a Week podcast. I am Arul Paul. I am an architect and associate professor at the Nitte Institute of Architecture, Mangalore. My research lies in the intersection between the built environment, queer theory, and media studies. I use history and theory as a lens to critically examine pedagogy as it evolves in response to new advances and challenges and to contribute to academia, research, writing, and practice. Today I'm talking to Teresa Kuldova and Matthew Verghese, editors of the book Urban Utopias, Excess and Expulsion in Neoliberal South Asia. Teresa Kuldova is a social anthropologist and research professor at the Work Research Institute, Oslo Metropolitan University. She is the author of several books and edited volumes and is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Extreme Anthropology. Matthew Verghese is an assistant professor in the School of International Relations and Politics. He also serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Extreme Anthropology, published from University of Oslo. His research as well as pedagogic interests are varied and he currently engages in enquiries into unintentional design and co-species evolutions in the Anthropocene. Hi, Teresa. Hi, Arul. Thanks for inviting. <laughs> and uh, Matthew Vergis. Hello. Hello, Matthew. Let's start with the title of your book, These Ideas of Excess and Expulsion they seem to feed into each other, creating a societal and economic divide with liberalization acting as a catalyst for these inequalities to grow. What is it in your opinion about South, the South Asian context in particular that is different from other neoliberal societies, say in the West? Well, that's a good question. I don't know about the the difference. What I think what I think maybe is different is that you can feel it so intensely. You can see it uh, in a great intensity, right? In the West, maybe uh, the maybe the West is better at hiding these <laughs> excesses, but they are no less there, right? We see that inequality has been increasing massively, uh, even in countries like Norway, where I live now. Uh, now. <laughs> We have uh, you, you, we have the same inequality as 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 the U.S., where one percent uh, of the richest people owns around forty percent uh, of the total wealth. But you just don't see it as oppressive in such an oppressive way as uh, as you would see it uh, as you would see it, for instance, in India. Uh, and one reason for that is the structure I, of global capitalism, right, where the global north has a tendency to exploit the global south, right? So uh, on one hand, you have this global uh, difference, but you also have a, a kind of local uh, difference, right, uh, in, in the sense that uh, also, of course, the local elites, and I think that uh, my work has been trying to do that a lot, uh, argue that 
it's not only uh, that the global north exploiting the global south but also the local elites are very capable at exploiting their own population right <laughs> so you have the same kind of excesses uh, as well uh, uh, locally and you, in that sense it becomes far more visible in countries like india i would say right you have all these gated communities luxury spaces you know you have hyper excess of luxury and wealth concentrated in certain areas and just on the outside like i i for a period i lived which i also describe in the book in a in a gated community in noida right and and this was like 2010 11 you know there was some kind of security apparatus some kind of checks and stuff but there was already the idea right that that you can kind of have a good life that is protected within the gate of the of this of this kind of uh, gated community and outside just outside you would have uh, migrant workers sleeping on the streets right uh that have to be checked uh, upon entry into this gated community and uh, and and so forth and 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 so so you can see this enormous contrast uh, in in your know, this everyday experience and and then we realized that this kind of idea of uh, like two indias this kind of parallel worlds is pervades also scholarship on india so you know lots of anthropologists work on the poor people and uh, and they write as if you know this kind of india is only like uh, these villages and so forth and then you have uh, then you have kind of others that devote themselves to this kind of future india right smart cities and and whatnot but these kind of you know they they kind of act as if these two worlds don't meet as if they are not dependent on each other right and so 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 it appears that you know both theory and real life and politics are very good at keeping those separate kind of intentionally so what we tried to do in the book and also later was to kind of bring these together right and say the one the world of Success is dependent on the world of expulsion, right? On on keeping some people outside. Uh, uh, now these kind of excesses, both the excesses and the exploitations, right now have been digitized. So now in uh, my recent work, I looked at these uh, apps like MyGate and stuff uh, uh, that kind of promise to keep the gated community. And also now in the context of the coronavirus, right, they manage the body. So you have biometric surveillance basically combined with the management of the of the gated community inside. So I think when we look at uh, architectures it's uh, one thing are those physical gates but you know we see that those are proliferating right there's more and more of these gates uh, and but we also see that there are these digital divides that kind of match the architectural structures uh, we should uh, maybe discuss it <laughs> or or architects could uh, discuss as well how these kind of digital digitally uh, architectures work with the physical architectures right and 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 what kind of uh, what kind of uh, borders they create in society right what kind of uh, what kind of expulsions they kind of produce by the way they are designed right and by what they enable and what they disable so then <laughs> so, i think matthew maybe has uh, some <laughs> following up ideas so this main thing that i was focusing on when i was rereading the book no or rather rebrowsing the book is that uh, the kind of dovetailing that uh, exes and the expulsions have have uh, uh, in a way uh, reconfigured in a different way in the sense that there is a 
one thing that the book wanted to foreground is the is the tendency to highlight what is called uh, scarcity, which is um, uh, which is uh, very much highlighted in um, in uh, literature on um, on development at least, and even those critiques of development that have come up, which seems to suggest that there are like. Uh, this many kinds of resources or this much of space left out a kind of suggestion that uh, there is a kind of a, of a numbering out there which is uh, in a way mythical when you look at it because sometimes it might be a problem of redistribution for example so scarcity takes that discussion out of it i mean it, what it does is that there is a depoliticization that uh, scarcity scarcity entails and excess comes up there if I take this example of housing availability, which I've been looking into after in 2018, um, the kind of statistics that comes out with respect to housing availability, at least in, in southwestern Indian state of Kerala, the kind of excess houses which were available, uh, still becoming a commodity which is hot on sale before the pandemics. Uh, and that's been there from 2012 to 2018. On the other hand, those who are less fortunate, uh, what they find themselves in is a kind of a dystopian environment where they are either on the receiving end of a rental system or they are continuously getting incorporated into a burgeoning credit system, which uh, again uh, follows a digital model, especially after demonetization. When we look at this book again, what we also see is about uh, the kind of anti-politics machinery that is being set into motion, because you feel that, I mean, the demonetization has been proven wrong, but whatever has proven wrong doesn't matter because afterwards what you get is a system in which uh, people uh, feel that they have to be digitally incorporated. In that sense, there is a politics in operation. Yes, Matthew, I think the book actually does that really well. The, uh, you know, at, at pointing out at this divide and, you know, looking at a sort of wide chasm that is there between, you know, the, the excesses and the expulsions. And I think that the book uses you know, the word expulsions itself in a, a number of ways. Uh, one way I think is this idea of a structural expulsion. You know, you give the example of the expulsion of an artisan from the imagination of the future. And there is also this physical expulsion from the city, right? Like the relocating of a basti, what an urban planner would, you know, categorize as a slum. Do you think that these, you know, two kinds of expulsions are actually related in a way? There is a difference that I see in the sense that one probably is also incorporating this idea of uh, the first example that is, of, I think that has more of a consent element built into it, uh, rather than the second one, which is, uh, which is what I have uh, looked more into. Uh, it's a kind of a normalization or a normativity that is produced from what was until then uh, a zone of exception. For example, if I take the example of special economic zones, there is a whole set of legalities which used to refer to that specific zone with those spatial categories now getting generalized using urban development plans, whether it's Jainanivaram or Amrit, uh, what you see is a generalization of the exception, whereby 
um, and a political aesthetic is in the making, whereby the slum cannot be there. Probably there are divergences across India. If I take India as an example, there are differences uh, with respect to the reaction, at least, uh, in the way political cultures are set. But uh, that's what I could see. It's, it's, it's definitely an, an interesting perspective on, you know, understanding consent when it comes to these expulsions. And I think that, and, and you're right, it varies, you know, across the country and, uh, you know, in, in different cities as well, in terms of how the populace themselves, you know, understand uh, what is happening and how they react to it, definitely. Um, Teresa, would, would you want to come in? Yeah, I think that uh, you know some of these ideas that uh, that you just mentioned in your question. I think they you know stem from actually my uh, my work on the fashion industry, where you know uh, I, I looked at the precisely the relation between the structural uh, relations, right, the, the economic relations, and so on, and uh, the aesthetics and the ideology, right? How do you legitimize these kind of uh, Re economic relations of exploitation, basically, right? You have to kind of provide a, a, a kind of ideological superstructure, if you will. And this kind of aesthetics, of course, draws on all these kind of royal uh, pasts of, of India, be it, uh, be it the Maharajas, Mughals, you, you name it, right? So you kind of uh, re recycle this type of uh, aesthetics, but this aesthetics is precisely an aesthetics of an economy of patronage, right? And it is de dependent very much on the on this on the labor of uh, artisans right so on one hand you have to valorize them right because without these artisans producing these uh, wonderful uh, fabrics and and so on and dresses that you can dress the elites in uh, they would not exist right they are dependent on the aesthetics on these on this multitude of labor uh, so you have to valorize them in a certain sense but what we see is that you kind of position them into the past right they are kind of you know the artisans uh, is always kind of in the past and, and is always projected back. Uh, and you kind of ignore the real body and the real person that is here and now <laughs> because you kind of valorize the image, right? Uh, so you kind of divorce the image of the person from, from what he's doing. And I think that this kind of logic of ideology you see also, uh, also in other contexts, right? So you have to, you, you give them a certain recognition, but the recognition doesn't translate into monetary or financial and uh, uh, recognition or into inclusion, right? And so, so uh, I think we, you can see it also in these in, in urban relations and, and again if you look at this kind of uh, gated uh, community structures this is exactly what it mirrors right uh, you kind of uh, you kind of create a, a, a kind of world uh, that is both you know very proud of the past inside but is also future oriented but you kind of exclude uh, those outside from both participating in a way maybe you position them into the past, but you exclude them from participation in the futures, right? There is kind of no place for them in the, in the imaginary future. And I think on top of it, like 
what we see more and more is this uh, global, I would say, this is not peculiar to India, uh, the global rise of kind of technocratic governance, right? Uh, uh, and, and the rule of experts and the rule of data and the rule of uh, objective facts and so forth. And when you translate this into governance, it basically means translating all these people who are excluded from before into statistics, into numbers, you know, you have Aadhaar, you have all these kind of uh, you, databases that you can link it with and you can categorize people you can kind of uh, algorithmically uh, decide who has access to what kind of goods and what kind of welfare or not who is deserving who is undeserving and so on so if you look at like policing for instance right and how do you police cities and this is uh, this is interesting because it again goes actually together with architectures because they are kind of set up in a certain way right so you so you kind of, uh, the police uses historical data, for instance, in their uh, categorization of uh, and, and predictive policing software. So you, you feed a machine with kind of biased data, right? If you say a certain neighborhood has always been bad and the police had all kinds of prejudice and caste prejudice and whatnot, you feed it into a database, you kind of run it through the machine and it kind of, uh, it gives the appearance and the illusion that the result is neutral, right? And, and that it's kind of data driven and, and, and so forth, right? And this is an enormous danger because you're building all kinds of cultural social prejudice into systems that, are, that then are to appear as neutral and so forth. One thing that I found uh... You know, very interesting uh, was uh, something that Tara Van Dyke says, uh, you know, she says that the collective imagined future is an urban future, but one without urbanity. What is this idea of urban without urbanity? What does it mean? I think I can, uh, you can briefly say that the the idea of the urban uh, has been linked to, you know, public space, right? The public space that is like, at least like in the, in the, the Western kind of notion of urbanity has traditionally been, you know, that, uh, you know, uh, like uh, a public space that is kind of inclusive and is for everybody. Uh, and this is where you're the citizen. This is where you can act as a, act as a, as, a, as a public person, unlike your private sphere where you act as a private person. So, it, you know, you would have this separation traditionally in kind of <laughs> between the public and the private, right? Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and there was this idea that, you know, the urbanity goes also hand in hand with uh, certain rights, equality, right, uh, and so forth, that, uh, that, you know, you're respected as a citizen. And, and, and this has been this kind of, you know, let's say Western notion of urbanity, right? And what we mean by this uh, urbanity that is imagined without, uh, without the urban, it's without this urban culture. Right, it's an urbanity that uh, that is actually structured along these kind of exclusions. Right, that rather than creating a public, a shared public where you know citizens meet at an equal footing when you go into a park and and everybody is in the park and you can have kind of you know this this it's another imaginary of urbanity. Let's say that we set against, <laughs> but uh, but this idea that you know it's a public space where you can openly debate. You have uh, democracy. You have all, all these. We see that you know this idea idea of urbanity is kind of uh, this this notion this kind of vision of urbanity is without this kind of core notion of the urban right uh, uh, 
so what we see instead is uh, precisely this proliferation of different gates. You know, you cannot, uh, you can privatization of the urban space, right? Like in some cities, you have, you know, whole streets that are owned by private company, right? Well, what does it, what does it do to 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 the kind of uh, sense of commons, right? <laughs> so you already plan cities with exclusions because you have this. The more the more you kind of uh, indulge in this precisely in this security mindset, right? So the more the more you kind of move towards a security city, the less urbanity in this sense you will have, because you do not trust your fellow citizen. Matthew, uh, would you like to come in on this idea of urban without urbanity? Yeah. I think uh, I will uh, take a cue from uh, what uh, Teresa has been saying, especially about the, what is happening to what one could call as commons uh, in, the, in the urban scenario. If I take the Indian context, and at least different states in India, uh, most of these commons that people have been occupying uh, for the last like 30, 40 years, they are not really classified commons, they are like unintentional commons. For example, there might be a, a, a paddy field which is lying vacant, uh, which probably has owners uh, if we search for them, but they are like uh, informal spaces that uh, people have been occupying. Or if it's a kind of uh, space between two houses, uh, there could be some entitlement if we look into it, but uh, which might not be there in practice. If it's an island, which is uh, in one of those backwaters, uh, there might be certain occupants who might be collecting shells in that island, but they might not have the entitlement. It's the other way. So, I mean, these kinds of spaces, which are like unintentional commons, which are in practice commons, are being uh, appropriated in an unprecedented uh, to an un in an unprecedented level in the in the in the recent times, and uh, there is a change in the evaluations that you one gives to spaces as lying dormant or vacant. So it's a it's a utilitarian uh, spatial uh, redefinition that you're getting in these kinds of imageries that have come up. So there are newer dependencies on um, transnationally mediated or, or constituted consumption spaces, whether it's supermarkets or malls or employment zones, as in special economic zones. So, so the commodities that, that, one, that, can, what, that one consumes, whether it's homes or whether it's urban spaces, uh, becomes more than a show to others. It's a pleasure in itself. It's a kind of self-directedness. That's where you get these SEZs and that's where you get this analytical policy. Uh, there is a concomitant operation of disciplinary and control structures over these places. Thus, you know, the digitization has been brought in as a theme that we might deal with if we are looking at it at the present context. So here within the networks that we see, or the, within the new protocols that are coming up in the urban spaces, we are seeing this, um, this something like the TCP/IP of internet extending to all stages of network. Um, moving on to uh, the second uh, part of your book, which uh, I thought was very interesting. Uh, and there was this idea that uh, came up uh, about uh, touristic consumption. And we see, um, you know, Rachel Varghese through the Biennale and the creation of, you know, a, a unified narrative of the city 
or um, Garima Dabai in the heritization of the city of Jaipur. Is there something troubling about this packaging of the nation, of the state, of the place, as India is so famous for, for touristic consumption? Well, uh, that is, uh, in fact, the, the part that uh, probably uh, demands uh, very sharp attention, and especially that uh, that the work, the work on Pinales and uh, the the Musilis, uh, project, uh, how a cosmopolitan imaginary uh, is being set um, is uh, again it works different in different places, but in, in the case of Musilis Pinale, there is a there is on one hand there is a there is a gamut of actualities that has come in up late through archaeological explorations and interrogations uh, that have gone into uh, knowledge uh, pieces. But uh, soon as that happens, uh, it gets trimmed into um, the heritage uh, discourse, uh, whereby uh, that gets incorporated into um, aesthetics, um, heritage presentations, as well as uh, even um, even eventual planning processes, how you plan this in a, in a tourist-come um, um, historical understanding circuit, if I may put it. And, um, uh, but probably it also happens in a, uh, in a, in a more megalomaniac ways uh, in, in other parts uh, of, of India, probably without this factuality coming in, also this can happen. Uh, whereby um, probably you can uh, go after uh, uh, myths being packed, repacked as facts, uh, getting implications for policy planning, getting materialized in uh, grotesque uh, structures sometimes. And the looking back into heritage, uh, the, the repackaging of uh, past uh, and as well as the presentation of uh, of a, of a history into a, of, into a into a new urban context, whereby, like in Dabai's article, there is a um, interesting aspect of deletion of certain uh, conduits and canals, one which one sees when you excavate the city, uh, which is probably not part of a narrative. You know, I mean, there is a narrative in the making which uh, needs certain ingredients. Whatever is not needed is not probably part of the narrative. So it's a, it's full of deletions as well. So these deletions are probably in a different way focused on in the Binale article. Teresa, would you would you want to come in about you know this this packaging of uh, you know the nation, the state, place, all in the name of you know a, a sort of you know very a very consumptive uh, tourism. Yes, I think you see, you can see it both in tourism, you can see it elsewhere as well, this uh, packaging of heritage and culture and so forth. Uh, and of course, uh, it kind of becomes problematic in the sense that, uh, of course, you want to kind of drive commerce a certain place and, and brand a certain location as attractive and so forth. But in a sense, everything becomes reduced to a commodity, right? So, so you can ask yourself, what is left of culture when, uh, when it is all reduced to a kind of 
products to be consumed, right? And and then uh, I, I remember it's a different case, but uh, but uh, there was a village in Czech Republic where I come from, which was uh, which suddenly made it onto UNESCO uh, list, right? And almost the people like nobody wanted to live there anymore. Right, because suddenly all the people who inhabited that village were forced to be kind of actors in in of their own, right a kind of a commodity themselves. So so they would only go there sometime, make their houses a bit nice, uh, maybe sell some pots or whatever. But uh, but they basically moved out right the moment it has been made into a, a a heritage site. And and I think this is this is you know this kind of unintended consequence or maybe intended I don't know but uh, but of kind of you you're turning the the inhabitants themselves into a form of attraction uh, at the same time as you kind of pushing them again into this kind of maybe idealized but nonetheless a past right uh, but uh, but you can see it uh, yes in India everywhere like even in the in the fashion industry right the the way you kind of retell the past what struck me in the, is uh, I think a quite okay example for this was that uh, in the in the in, in at some point in the, in in this consumption of luxury uh, fashion, you have uh, you know you have you would have uh, saris or these luxurious uh, dresses that would actually be combined. Uh, where, where you know you would source fabric from different parts of India, you would source embroidery from different parts of India, right? Why? Because you wanted to create at some point a certain narrative of a kind of cosmopo, um, no, maybe like Indian elite, but. The, but you know, Indian in the sense of not localized, but you know, a, a, a fully Indian, right? So you would incorporate elements from across India into kind of your, you, you would wear them. And of course this would set you apart from a, from the artisan who, you know, maybe is based in Lucknow, can, you know, maybe produces some kind of a chicken embroidery, but, uh, but maybe can afford a very cheap one for himself or herself. Uh, but, you know, it's fully localized subject, right? But you would become a national subject by kind of merging, you know, and being able to kind of source tradition. So, so in that sense, you know, you can, you can create belonging, right? Through these kind of narratives, which is both a belonging that is local, that can be national, but it can also be global in a certain sense. So this is how you can use you know all these kind of traditions histories to kind of both commodify them but also utilize them politically and political aesthetics and and match them with a certain ideology and and you know this this keeps changing you know the, the, there is no uh, you know the, the the cultural repertoire is great right so you can you can argue for cosmopolitanism but you can argue for national shamanism and uh, hindu nationalism whatever you want it, it, and how you pick the history, how you pick package it, and how you sell it. One part of your book that I found very fascinating was, you know, the part that was talking about urban queer utopias and bodily expulsions. And, uh, you know, we see the city through these texts, um, you know, as Aaron Betsky would say, as a mythical space, a space where you know, queer individuals, among many others, are drawn to with a promise of freedom. So what is it about the queer that makes it such an interesting lens to view the city? One thing, uh, if I can, I've, uh, when I look back at it, uh, which is uh, striking, 
is uh, the way uh, public spaces have uh, transformed um, of late and what has becoming uh, what are what are becoming uh, normal for the eye uh, so to say uh, when you go for an ethnographic uh, field work and when you talk to people uh, what are the things that they mark out as stark and non, not still so stark has changed a lot and uh, one of the reasons why this has happened is uh, also because of the way there is an active occupation of, uh, of uh, spaces that are politically done uh, as one of those articles from Osella uh, talks about um, in which uh, children for example when you talk to them uh, they uh, take uh, many things for granted and uh, these are not things that they that that looks odd to them but people dressed in a particular way or a particular kind of uh, I mean uh, people of the same gender walking together for example and uh, that is that is preceded by a political process of active occupation as I see it so the the, the cure occupying the city space um, is uh, sometimes probably also looking for a radically new space which is probably not so much there in the Indian context that connectivity is there and the rural haunts the urban or whatever is called rural haunts the urban. Uh, so that haunting uh, is an extra negotiation that they have to make once the space is occupied. And that can operate in different ways. It could operate as public culture, an urban public culture, which is uh, exclusionary in character. It could, be, it could be operating in the sense of the housing market, which could be exclusionary in character. Uh, so there are different ways in which that could operate. So yes, uh, with respect to the movement, there is a, there is a the magnet or the, 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 the drive of utopia, which is there. But uh, there are certain materialities that, uh, that backdrop it. Jackson Stray in her essay points to an interesting fact that many, you know, queer individuals and groups who, you know, might appear to be resisting the sort of hegemonic structures. When you look closely and you observe them, you see that, you know, they're a, a part of these same structures or they're actually contributing to these structures. So do you think queer is a means to resist the neoliberal or does it, you know, actively contribute to furthering the agenda, the neoliberal agenda, or is it, is, is it both in some cases? I think it can be both. Basically, the, the neoliberal system always tries to co-opt any kind of resistance, any kind of opposition. Uh, and of course, uh, this is this is not unique to that what she's describing in the context of the queerness right and, and of course uh, the queer uh, themselves are not beyond the structures of society in which they 
I grew up and live, <laughs> so it is it is obvious that uh, that that that, that this uh, this can be the case, and uh, and of course it it gives you a certain possibility because you have a different point of view, so you can challenge the system on certain points, so it allows you to see the world uh, differently and experience because you by default experience certain exclusions, so you can be critical of this. But of course, there is always the simultaneous tendency to co-opt any kind of uh, resistance of this sort. So, uh, so again, this I think this dynamics is not unique, but of course, uh, uh, it, it is a it is a tricky a tricky issue. How do you resist, uh, you know, uh, a system that is laid out with with uh, certain kind of uh, <laughs> uh, default uh, premises, uh, right? It is a bit like uh, you want to challenge. Uh, very often, you see people want to challenge Facebook, but they do it on Facebook, right? It is a bit like. <laughs> How do you go about uh, these these uh, these possibilities, and what kind of possibilities do you have to break with certain ideologies in in practice, right? Uh, but uh, yes, uh, so uh, I think this co-option is a problem. But I think what you see in that uh, case, I think nicely, is that uh, you know the urban. Uh, there is always like certain form of desire and fantasy and hope that is connected to urbanity, which is also connected to the possibility of anonymity, relative anonymity. Now that you have more and more surveillance, you have less of it. But <laughs> but uh, but uh, but you know this this idea that you know you're you can be kind of you're no longer judged by your background, by your you know by the people that are surrounding you, by this kind of oppressive. But can become oppressive social relations, right? That you can free yourself of them. But in practice, of course, you end up being part of different relations. <laughs> and uh, so, 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 uh, so, but there, there is this fantasy, and it, of course, runs into the reality as well. So, so this, is, this will always be the same dilemma, I think. <laughs> Thank you. Um... Teresa and Matthew for speaking to us, sharing your thoughts. Uh, I look forward to reading more of your work. Uh, there's so much that, uh, you know, we could explore. And, uh, you know, once our, uh, you know, listeners pick up your book, there's so much more that they could, uh, you know, learn about what you're doing. So I think that's great. Uh, Teresa, Matthew, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you, Arul, and uh, thanks for those leading questions. That takes us back to the book once again. Thank you, Thank you Arul. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Do not miss to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. Available on all your favorite podcast apps.